Man, it's dark in here when it's cloudy outside. We're working on lights, and by the way, if you've been uh, with us for a while now, we're still fairly new in this space right here, if you're uh, new with us today, and, um, but it has been really fun to watch this place uh, turn into uh, a little sanctuary before our eyes, and the really neat thing is that all of this stuff also, uh, we get to bless the school that starts here the week after next, and all of this stuff, they're dreaming about how they can use it. The gym teacher is dreaming about how he can use uh, even these speakers and this for movie nights and, and all the rest, uh, playing the electric slide or whatever the kids are into these days uh, for, uh, for all of the kids uh, here at Creve Hall Elementary. So pretty neat how we get to be a blessing, uh, and that very much fits into where we're headed uh, today as well. Uh, a few years ago, there was a kind of docudrama thing that happened on Netflix called Waco. I don't know if you saw it. It was about uh, David Koresh and the Branch Davidians, which was this kind of cult that he was the leader of at the time. This was in the mid-90s. And the root belief of the Branch Davidians was that Jesus was coming soon, uh, this guy, David Koresh, was getting like downloads straight from the Lord about when it was going to happen and how it was going to happen and the, what they should do in the midst of that as it happened. And so what he believed the Lord told him to do was grab some guns, hunker down, shut out the outside world, duck and cover, and wait for it all to be over. And there are many different ways that we may interact with that same kind of a question this morning. That one did not end particularly well, uh, but we're all still asking that same question. And this isn't a uniquely Christian question. This is just a question that everyone across the board has to deal with. How do I interact with the outside world? How do I interact with culture, especially when it becomes difficult, is how do I interact with culture or individuals with whom I disagree? That's a question every one of us are asking today. And, you know, it goes into everything from what school should I send my kids to and where should I work and who should I be friends with. In every one of those questions, you're asking that discernment under-level question of how do I engage with this outside world, outside of my home, outside of my family? I can't necessarily answer that question for everybody, this morning across the board, but I can answer that question based on what the scripture has to say about it and if the gospel has changed you this morning. We've been in a series uh, that the gospel changes everything and I've been sort of slowly walking through how the gospel changes me, how the gospel changes, how I relate to the church community, and now we're in a section of three sermons on how do I, as a believer, relate to the outside world. And so we are very much asking that question, how do I relate as a Christian to a world that many times believes very differently than me on a whole host of things? And Christians throughout the centuries have come to very different uh, decisions about this question, and it can really shape a person's life. So it's incumbent, I think, that we look to the scriptures and figure out what it has to tell us this morning. But if, if I am reconciled to God, if those first three weeks 
back at the way beginning of the summer are true. If the gospel has changed, the good news of Jesus has changed the way that I relate to God. I'm reconciled to him through the blood of Jesus. And if I'm internally beginning to change, my, the, the fruit of the Spirit is being born in my heart. Love, joy, peace are starting to come out of me more and more. And then I hear the command of Jesus to give away all of myself in the same way that he has given away all of his self. I'm asked to give away all of myself for the sake of someone else, to love my neighbor and to love God. If all of that is true, then a certain stance between myself and other people, whoever they are, Christian, non-Christian, whoever they are, a certain stance begins to develop between me and the outside world. Um, That certain stance, thankfully, is corroborated across all of Scripture. And so we're going to jump way back into an Old Testament prophet who has some specific, unique, uh, paradigm-shifting kind of understanding for how we should relate today based on what he told the people of God way back in his time. And so we're going to read from Jeremiah 29. Uh, Not the famous verse, but we will talk about that one here in a little bit. Okay? But this is just before that. Jeremiah 29 verses 4 through 7, and Janie is going to come up and read for us. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we need your spirit to understand this word uh, rightly. We need your spirit to discern for us how we should live and interact in all of our Monday through Saturdays. We're on the cusp of going back into a lot of regular normal life as school is, is starting back soon and vacations are ending and people are beginning to come back into town and, and the regular rhythm and the regular grind is about to be here. I pray that you give us a vision for how we should look, how we should relate, how we should see this place, Creve Hall, South Nashville, uh, this city where you have placed us. Give us eyes to see, in your eyes to see, how you love this place and what you desire to use us to do here. And we pray uh, that there would be a more and more a shaping of this community to look more like heaven as your people go out into it. We pray in Christ. Amen. So Old Testament Israel found themselves in a a pretty similar situation to what we find ourselves in today. They were sort of in this foreign land. Their beliefs differed from everybody else around them, from the predominant culture that they found themselves in. Uh, And they found themselves in, in sort of hostility with a lot of, and in direct confrontation with the beliefs of the day. This is also, this context is the very same context that 
the book of Daniel was written, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, the fiery furnace, that whole thing is taking place in this time and space. And so all of that begins to help, help us understand how we should live in our world today. But we can't necessarily always make this jump from A to B, from Old Testament command to sort of how we should live as believers today. And so we are going to have to do some careful thinking about how do we take this Old Testament prophecy that was written to a different people in a different time and apply it to ourselves today. I'm also making an assumption. This particular passage is being spoken to the people of God. And so if you're here this morning and you're not sure what you believe yet, that is totally okay. Welcome. Uh, And I hope this can be a place where you can feel safe to hash out all of those questions that you have. What I hope this could tell you today is be a bit of a paradigm shift from the assumption that many times the outside world can bring into what they believe Christians to be. In 2007, this is way ancient history now, a Barna poll uh, found that 87% of non-Christians believe that Christianity was primarily judgmental and exclusive. I can only imagine that that stat has just gone up, not down, today. I found this on the web. <laughs> Apparently, my Apple Watch just found that study. I can read more to you if you'd like. And hear me say this, Christians can get this wrong for sure, and have, I have, we get this wrong all the time. So what I hope, wherever you are this morning, that you would not let the Christian witness, maybe even that you just assume in your mind, be how you understand this, but let the Bible be the primary thing that speaks this morning. Let the Lord speak through his word, and then be patient with the believers among you as we continue to try to live into this reality. So, We're going to think of this in in kind of three ways. We're going to think of it in Jeremiah's brain. What does exile mean to Jeremiah as he speaks to these people of of his day? How do we then think about Jesus and his exile and what that meant then for New Testament believers today? So Jeremiah's exile, Jesus' exile, and finally, my exile. Because the theme of exile, meaning sort of a separation of, Uh, two relationships, one from another, is one that you can trace all the way back to the first pages of Scripture. All the way back, Genesis 1, Genesis 2, perfect world created, everything made exactly as it should be. Mankind created in the image of God, meant to be one with Him, to enjoy constant relationship with Him. And in Genesis 3, everything changes. Because Adam and Eve, the core of their sin was not just eating a fruit that they shouldn't have eaten. The the core of that was a disbelief, a lack of trust that God was good, a lack of trust that he was going to provide and that they had to ultimately provide for themselves. They were substituting God for themselves and what they thought should happen. And when that happened, what begins to take place, and you see the end of Genesis 3 is curse judgment. If God is the creator of all things, he can rightly be the judge of all things. He sets the standard. We are living in his world. And so that being the case, 
This is what he says. He says, there's going to be a curse now between you and I. There's going to be a separation between you and I. What that ultimately turned into was you're going to have to leave the garden. You're going to have to leave my presence. You're going to have to, to leave this lovely, lush place that you have always enjoyed, and you're going to have to go make your way in the barren wasteland out there. But judgment is always paired with promise. The entire testimony of all the scriptures is a combination of judgment and promise. And you find it all the way back in those early pages. Because in Genesis 3, as God is saying, I'm sending you away from me now because you've broken my commandment. And he rightly should. He also, in the next breath, says, but a day is coming when a Messiah will come and make this relationship right again and bring you back into all this fellowship and everything that you have tasted here, even a more full form than you have had here. So that theme then begins to paint the entire, that sets the trajectory for the Old Testament. And so you, you can see this in Jeremiah's day, what he's experiencing is God has created a people for himself. Those people have grown in number all the way back in Egypt. God has brought those people out of Egyptian slavery. He has brought them across the Red Sea. He's brought them through the wilderness. He's brought them to their promised land. He has given them a king. He has given them a temple. He has given them everything they had asked for. And what do they do in return? And what do we do in return? Thanks. Bye. Great gifts. Not so much about like you telling me what to do and everything, but I love all the stuff you gave me. And so yet again, Israel has forgotten their God and taken all of his stuff and said, this stuff is really great. I love this. But when we disconnect the giver from the gift, things get all haywire and wonky. And so we see that. We see that in our day. We see that in his day. What's happening in Jeremiah 29 is God has used an evil king, the evil king of Babylon, to come in and take his people and send them away back into slavery in Babylon. He has taken and used sovereignly all of the events of world history to position his people in this very moment at this very time. And he does so very purposefully to, again, show them that judgment is real because God is real. There is a standard with which we should live up to. And when we don't live up to that, judgment is what should rightly come. Separation is what should rightly come. But then false prophets come into that thing and they're like, hey, Babylon, you know, exiles in Babylon, don't worry about it. You're going to be back in Jerusalem in a jiff. Don't worry. It's just a flesh wound. You'll be back in a couple of years. Everything is going to be okay. Don't worry about it. Just kind of bury your head in the sand and we'll get through this together. So Jeremiah comes on the scene to say this, and this is the context with which all of this stuff about building houses and planting gardens and having babies and all of those things, seeking the welfare of the city comes from. Because essentially what Jeremiah is saying is, get comfy. It's going to be a while. This, this exile, this period of longing that you are now in, longing for your homeland, longing for things to be at peace again, it's going to be a while before you taste that. Maybe this is sounding a little bit familiar to your experience in everyday life. But 
the temptation then for them was to listen. Oh man, that prophecy sounds real good. Like a couple of years and then everything's going to be fine. I can just kind of bury my head in the sand or I can just eat and drink and just kind of pass my days. And then eventually we're going to be back in that promised land. Milk and honey are going to flow from the hills and everything's going to be fine. And Jeremiah comes into that and says, no, there's actually some bad news. That bad news is that because God is real, because judgment is real, that as you continue to resist and pretend like that isn't true, like that doesn't exist, only, that only pushes you further and further and further away from him. You only experience more and more and more difficulty and drain in your life because of that. And the same is true today. God says in Romans 1 that our experience of life in our culture today is God has removed his hand and is letting people, by and large, do what they want to do. But what we see as his hand is removed is that life goes haywire. You see it in divorce. You see it in war. You see it in abuse. You see it in fighting, in corruption, in racism, in greed. You see it all over the place. We're not good when we're left to ourselves. We're not good when we have to figure out this world for ourselves and figure out how to uh, relate rightly one to another. To pretend like this world is okay is a denial of reality. This world is not okay. Even one step further, we're not okay. We find all of this that is wrong with us, both inside of us and outside of us. And our temptation, though, is to pretend like it's, it doesn't exist, like it's not a thing. And we cope and we build these little utopian societies in and of our homes, in and of our families, in and of our minds. And we, we use money and we use power and we use drink and we use food and we use whatever it is to try to build, to, to stop the effects, to close our eyes to the, the world that we actually live in. And instead, what Jeremiah is calling even us today in this room to do is to open our eyes, to see that this world is not good and right and at peace and wholeness, and neither am I. If you remember, there's a, a scene, all of my movie references are like 15 years old, so I'm sorry. Um, but, you know, in the, the Matrix is full of sermon illustrations, so you'll probably hear me say more than one. But uh, in that scene in the, the first Matrix movie, which if you haven't seen it, uh, the Matrix is this movie, and the premise is Keanu Reeves is kind of the, you know, the, the good guy in this movie. And there's, everyone is living in this digital utopia. And everyone, because the outside world is so broken, everyone is literally plugged in to this USB port kind of thing in the back of their brains. And they're in this state of sleep existing in this sort of dream world. And to live in the reality of the broken world around them, this dystopian society that had come, meant to be red-pilled, to, to wake up to that reality. And there was this choice that these renegade people were giving people to take this red pill and wake up to that reality. And there's this guy named Cypher, who is one of the pilots of one of the, the spaceship things that roll through that thing. And he's been woken up, he says, for nine years. And he's like, I don't know if I want to do it anymore. And so you find him in this scene, and he's sitting at this white tablecloth restaurant 
this amazing filet mignon, like three inches thick, sitting in front of him. He cuts a piece of it off. He stabs his fork into it. He holds it up, and the camera pans across to the main bad guy, Mr. Smith. And he looks at Mr. Smith, and he says, make sure I get this right. He says, you know, I know that this steak isn't real. But you know what I've learned after nine years? Ignorance is bliss. And just consider how prophetic even that movie was. Everyone living in a digital utopia because the real world is too broken to bear. That doesn't sound too far off from our experience today. How do we begin to, as, as the Lord wakes us up to the reality, as we have to sit in this room this morning and contend with the brokenness outside of us and the brokenness inside of us, what do we do with that? How do we handle that? How do we handle engaging, just getting up tomorrow morning and engaging with this world if that's really how bad it is? This is where Jeremiah 29, 11 comes in. A few verses later, this is the one that everybody knows, that everybody has the plaque on their wall uh, with the calligraphy written on it and everything. The bad news, if the bad news is really as bad as we've just painted it, then the good news, which is what gospel means that we've said before, has to be all that much better for it to counteract all that bad. Now comes that famous verse, I will visit you, God says. I will fulfill to you my promise and bring, back to you, bring you back to this place. Here it is. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a hope in the future. That promise in short term was fulfilled a few generations later when God's people were brought back into Jerusalem. But that still wasn't the end of the story because brokenness and exile and loss and all of that continues on until 600 years after. 600 years later, at this little tumble-down stable on the outskirts of town, this little man who is also God was born. And he lives his life, Jesus lives his life in exile from one moment to another. He experiences the full temptation, just the exile of having to come to earth, of being away from his father, of having to live in the skin that ultimately he created and be away from the glory that he had always enjoyed. And not only that, he, he lives in obscurity for 30 years. And he, he's a carpenter living this quiet life on the outskirts of town. When he's initiated into his ministry, the first thing he does is spend 40 days fasting in the wilderness, being tempted by the devil. Exile, exile, exile. And ultimately, after three years of ministry, traveling from town to town with no home to call his own, even his own hometown ultimately saying, you're a weirdo, get away from us. He finds himself trumped up on false charges, being called a false prophet when actually he was the one true prophet. And what was this false prophet saying? He was saying, wake up, repent. This world is broken. You're broken. Sin is breaking you and is breaking this whole world, but there is a way out. Follow me. Repent and follow me. And so ultimately what that means as he followed as we follow him and watch his life after 33 years ending in his ultimate exile 
from the Father and from all the people he loved in his death on the cross. That experience of exile after exile after exile after exile, and yet watch how Jesus engages with people. Watch how Jesus loves the outside world. Watch how Jesus interacts with people who are demon-possessed. Watch how Jesus interacts with people who are blind, who are leprous. He moves towards, he touches, he heals, he loves, he hopes when others have none. This is the very power that now dwells inside his people. And so in that kind of power is what begins to propel us outward, but it is only to the degree that we fully realize, and that's the question to us first, before we talk about how we engage with outside of us, we got to talk about how we're engaging with the Lord inside of ourselves. Have we truly come to the place where we've said, I, I really am so broken, I cannot fix myself. I am so broken, I need someone from the outside. I, I realize there is a right judgment that I should be under, and it is either going to be my judgment or it is going to be Jesus's judgment. Have you gotten to the point where you've said, I need Jesus to stand in my place. I need Jesus to stand on my behalf and take the judgment to take the exile that I deserve. And if that's true, if that is where you are today, if the gospel has changed and woken you up to that reality, that you see the brokenness inside and you see the brokenness outside, then things begin to change. Things begin to change in the way that we view reality in the very same way that we're sort of woken up out of the matrix to say, wow, God's real and life is short. What in the world do I spend my time doing? So uh, finally, if, if that is where we find ourselves today, then my stance begins to be changed. I begin to lean in and move towards people as the Lord is using literally me as he dwells inside of me to be his agent in this world, to be his, going all the way back to week one, his ambassador. And so how do I handle myself? While I wait for this promised hope and future that one day when Jesus comes back and does bring all the shalom, all the peace, all the wholeness that he says he will, how do I live in this little space of time in between that? How do I wait well for that? There's two ways according to this passage. One, seek the welfare of the city, and two, pray to the Lord on its behalf. What would Nashville, what would Creve Hall, what would Durrett Drive, where I live, or whatever street you reside on, what would that place begin to look like if this is the vision with which you wake up every morning? I, my job here is to seek the welfare of the city and to pray on its behalf. And even the goofy disciple Peter, he began to pick up on this. In, in the, the letters of First and Second Peter, he introduces himself and he introduces those who he is writing to like this. He says, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. So he carries that exile theme into the New Testament to say he's writing to a church. And so in the very same way, he's writing to Midtown Creve Hall and he's saying, exiles, chosen by God, loved by God, sent into this world on purpose by God. This is what I want you to do. And then he spends almost, you could read the entire book of 1 Peter and it would give you a much more fully orbed understanding than we're able to do here. 
But in, verse, in chapter 4, he says this, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. As good stewards of God's varied grace, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. So what is this saying? Peter is, is drawing this connection all the way back to Jeremiah 29, and he's saying, elect people of God. You have been, you are uniquely exiled. You are uniquely sent wherever God has sent you. You're uniquely sent in your schools. You're uniquely sent in your workplace. You're uniquely sent in your neighborhood. You have been put in that very house for a particular reason. And that reason is to seek the welfare of the city and to pray for it to prosper. Would that be a new vision that you can begin to live into? And this doesn't have to be something, I think what Peter's trying to say is, you don't have to do everything. Just do what you love. Like, what do you love to do? Whatever you're gifted to do. If, if you love to brew beer, throw a party. If you love to uh, fix stuff, if you're good with your hands, look around and see who might need some help. If you love to, to grow stuff, how about bouquets for teachers on the first day of school? I didn't just volunteer uh, my wife or anything. Uh, if you love administration, the, the PTA or your HOA or your neighborhood association, there are all kinds of places where you can just be you in the unique way that he's created you to be and thrive and help others to thrive and help the city to thrive as you do that. This doesn't have to be something that's some sort of like, oh, it's another assignment from Jesus that I got to go do and be bored while I do it. This is just Jesus dignifying you and being like, I love you. I made you. And I made you to love stuff. Now go do what you love for the sake of me. So if um, this was news to me when I was in seminary and I, I began to hear of all of the ways that throughout history Christians have influenced for good the culture around them. Uh, so this historian of medicine at the University of Washington, uh, his name's Albert Johnson, he said this. He's talking about the centuries from the 4th century to the 14th century. He says, during these centuries, the Christian faith permeated all aspects of life in the West. The very conception of medicine as well as its practice, was deeply touched by the doctrine and discipline of the church. The theological and ecclesiastical influence manifestly shaped the ethics of medicine, but it even indirectly affected its science. Since, as missions evangelized the people of Western and Northern Europe, the church found itself in constant battle against the use of magic and superstition in the work of healing. Listen to this. It championed, that is the church, championed rational medicine along with prayer to counter superstition. Seek the welfare of the city to which I have sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord on its behalf. Those are the two things that was animating the church that changed the face of modern medicine, that built and initiated the building of the first hospitals. Now, Christians weren't the only people doing that, but the initiation of that and much of that movement during that time did come from the Christian population. So kind of a, a diagnostic question that I've asked over the years, both of, of my life personally and of the churches that I have been a part of is, if our church 
cease to exist? If Midtown Creve Hall ceased to exist, let's, let's go bigger than that. If Midtown Fellowship ceased to exist, would Nashville miss us? Which is ultimately getting after that question of, are we as the church providing a tangible taste of the kingdom of heaven here on earth? Like, like that song we just sang, like the Lord's prayer that it reflected, that we're praying and we're seeking that the kingdom of heaven would become visible on earth. That's the agenda item of our life. That's the marching orders that our Lord Jesus has sent us to. Seek and pray. And have I got to offer for you this morning? Because the goal of the church ultimately is to equip the saints for the work of ministry, which is you. Our goal is not to do all the ministry. I wasn't hired to do all the ministry. I was hired to equip you to do all the ministry so that I can watch and take naps. Uh, but before that, um, we just want to take Jesus at his word. We want to hear the wisdom of the Lord through Jeremiah and just pause and take a couple of minutes here to pray for our city, to pray for Creve Hall, uh, to pray for those up and down Nolensville Pike, up and down Trousdale, up and down Franklin, and wherever else uh, the Lord sends this particular people as they are dispersed out during the week to be his agents of change in the world. So to do that, I've asked Robin Dillard if she would come up and lead us for a few minutes in prayer. Morning. So I was struck by Jeremy's statement that we live in the world and, and we are not okay. But there's good news because his word says, let us approach the throne of grace with confidence. So let us bow our heads and pray for our city and for our neighborhood. Father, we thank you for your grace and your goodness. May your face continually shine upon us so that your ways may be known in our communities, beginning right here in this corner in Creef Hall and then radiating outward into Nolensville Road and the surrounding areas into Nashville. Lord, we thank you for our land and our homes, our labor, and our city. Look with favor on our community and protect our pastors and citizens and wrench our land so that we may be a blessing to others for we know that you give us more than we need in a day. Help us be generous in every way. Thank you, Lord, for our civil servants. Thank you for their hard work and sacrifice. May you continually bless them. May you generously give to each of them wise and discerning hearts to skillfully govern the people in our city and bring order and stability and prosperity to our community. Thank you, Lord, that you desire justice for all. Let us be attentive to the cries of the poor. Let us share their burdens and come to their aid. May we treat the poor among us with, with respect and fairness and love. Let our love bring them hope and encouragement and freedom. Lord, I lift up um, the Napier ministry and Jonathan and DeCarlo's father. Protect them as they reach out into the inner city. 
Lord, put a hedge of protection around their ministry and around their families. Father, thank you for the um, produce partnership that is thriving. Father, I pray that you would lead them to people of peace in that neighborhood, folks that can help them sow the seeds of ministry. Lord, I pray for all the refugees uh, in Nashville and the surrounding areas. Father, you have made this place uh, um, a safe place for refugees um, fleeing war and dictators and harm. Lord, I pray for servant group, that we would steward resources rightly. Father, I pray that you would raise up volunteers to serve in um, ministry, so for hope, um, and our ESL program, all of that, Father. Uh, volunteers are needed. Lord, I pray that we would put ourselves in places of weakness and that, Father, you would come to our aid as we navigate. Lord, help us show our children folks that are different than us and help us be generous stewards, Lord, I pray. Help us learn to make strangers into neighbors and neighbors into family. Help us set a table that is wide and long with your love. Father, thank you for empowering your people to preach the good news in our city. Let more people open their hearts to Jesus. Revive our city with new life. We need revival, Father. May every person, marriage, family, school, and business in our community enjoy your blessings. Let the benefits of your people influence our city. Your word says, through the blessing of the upright, a city is exalted but by the mouth of the wicked it is destroyed. And Lord, we ask you to silence the evil voices in our city. Let our praying community here at Midtown be a transformative force in Nashville and beyond. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.